If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. In today's episode, we'll be taking a whistle-stop tour through the history of Japan with Christopher Harding. Christopher is a historian at the University of Edinburgh and the author of books including the upcoming The Japanese, A History in Twenty Lives, to be published by Alan Lane in November. Putting the questions to Christopher was our world history editor, Matt Elton. What do we know about very early Japanese civilization, and how old? How old is it? So we think there have been people living in Japan on the Japanese islands probably for about 30,000 years, maybe 35,000 years. You can dig up edge ground axes and all this kind of thing. Um, so we're fairly sure they've been there for a while. But the first written records for Japan to actually find out in detail what was going on, um, we don't really have those until the early centuries AD. So Chinese visitors came across and had a look at what was going on there. They discovered these um, sort of a series of small chiefdoms dotted around the archipelago. So there's no place yet that would 
understand itself as being Japan, just these different chiefdoms. And the first known and named person in Japanese history is a shaman queen called Himiko, who was in power, she came to power almost as a a teenager in her early 20s, um, in about 190 AD. And she was a combination of a, a shaman and a military ruler. And so the picture we get from the Chinese observers talking about her kingdom, they call her, they sort of saw her as ruling by magic and sorcery as well as force of arms. So you get a sense of a, uh, a community which is ruled by her from behind palisades, guarded, no one ever really sees her, um, communing with the gods for the good of the realm. Her brother, we think, does much of the sort of day-to-day work of ruling the realm. And it's a fairly hierarchical place as well. I know people think about Japan now as a fairly hierarchical society. Um, The earliest suggestions we have is of a fairly hierarchical place based around people's wealth and status, based in turn around the amount of rice wealth they control, precious metals uh, like brass from which you make bells and mirrors and swords and these sorts of things. So yeah, status society controlled by a mixture of her shamanic power um, and also the force of her warrior's arms. But even then, that's really only one uh, out of perhaps a hundred or so chiefdoms. Although hers, we think, is the most powerful. And it's certainly the one that we know the most about from this early period. Mm. Are there any uh, other named individuals that we know of from the ancient period? Not really. She's the first one. And even her life is quite hard to piece together. So there's an argument been raging in Japan for years about where her kingdom actually was. We think it was called Yamatai. Uh, and it was either, you know, Japan, I, th- I suppose a lot of your re- readers and listeners will know, Japan has these four main islands. So Tokyo, Osaka, etc. are on Honshu, the largest. Um, the southern island called Kyushu she may have had her kingdom there, which is quite possible because lots of the um, technology for making weapons, for doing all sorts of other things with metal, with brass in particular, along with rice cultivation, all comes to Japan through Korea, the Korean Peninsula. So the Korean Peninsula is only about, what, 200 kilometres from Kyushu at its narrowest point. So her kingdom may well have been there, it would make a lot of sense, or it may have been somewhere on the island of Honshu, but no one knows exactly where it was. Her tomb is talked about as being extraordinarily impressive, but no one has yet dug it up. When they do, that'll be a a really big moment in Japanese history, I think. Um, We're obviously uh, in this conversation drawing on some questions from social media and from Google. Mm. Um, And one of the most searched Google terms about Japan is what contributions did ancient Japan make to global culture? It's a good question, Um, partly because people would have trouble agreeing on what would be a Japanese contribution versus a Chinese contribution. So from uh, around the 500s AD, you have this heavy sustained contact with China. So a lot of what we think about as being Japanese Japanese has origins in China. Uh, So Japanese Buddhism comes from China via Korea, a lot of its temple architecture, rice, we talked about other elements of its cuisine. The kimono also has its origins in Chinese style court dress. Um, So the point at which you can say there's a real definitive Japanese contribution, I might... I might highlight two things, I suppose. One would be going right the way back that uh, Japan produces some of the world's oldest pottery. So the very early period, we call it Jomon, um, which we date from roughly 14,500 BCE 
all the way through to 500 AD. So it's a huge long period, but that period is defined in part by the discovery of um, what they call rope-patterned pottery. So quite simple clay pots with a rope pattern around them. That's what Jormon means. Um, for a while, we thought that was the world's oldest pottery. So a lot of Japanese would point to that as being a big early contribution. Unfortunately for Japan, they found some in China, which is about 20,000 years uh, BC, so a little bit older. Um, but still, some of that some of that old pottery in Japan, I think, is really important. And even now, there are styles of pottery in Japan. Um, Bizenyaki is one example, which really emphasise not a polished result, but a kind of beautifully rustic aesthetic to it. So that sort of pottery, that kind of ceramic, I think, is a really early Japanese contribution. If I had to name another early one, it would probably be what a lot of your readers and listeners would know as Shinto. Um, the Shinto religion, the way of the gods. It's not really called Shinto until, you know, towards the modern era, but this sense of human life taking place amidst these flows of energy that go right through nature, through the natural world, the earth, vegetation, other animals, being part of a flow of energy. So Queen Himiko, who we spoke about, one of her big roles, we think, was to call down some of the gods into particular features of the landscape, a tree, a waterfall, a stream, and worship them there in natural form. So what used to be called the kind of animism, the sense of nature being pervaded by the divine. There's a really strong element there in Japanese culture from before Himiko, through Himiko, all the way through, if people are interested, for example, in um, Miyazaki Hayao, his manga and anime, a lot of that is the idea that the environment is kind of sacred because there's a divine presence within it. I'd say again, that's something that I think a lot of Japanese would point to, as being distinctively Japanese. So if you wanted two examples from ancient Japan, I'd say probably those two, that natural rustic aesthetic for its ceramics, and then that sense of the world being uh, inhabited by the divine. Um, staying on the subject of religion, mm. when was Buddhism introduced to Japan? So Buddhism comes into Japan, we think around 550 AD. So it's been around for a thousand years by that point in Asia, and it passes through uh, China, through the Korean Peninsula, and makes its way into Japan. Um, yeah, around 550 AD. People are quite sceptical early on. It's thought it's treated as a migrant religion, and there's a worry that the, the gods who we've been speaking about, the ones of you know of what we now call Shinto, that they might be offended by this interloper. And early on, Japan goes through a couple of natural disasters, at which point people blame Buddhism. They say the native gods clearly are offended. And so they throw Buddhist statues into a canal, they burn down a temple. So it takes a while to get going um, after 550. But you could say probably by around 900 or 1000, it's becoming the dominant uh, institutional form of religion in Japan. We then move into a, another distinct period of Japanese history, which is feudalism. How did feudal Japan begin to emerge? So yeah, I suppose you could say if you if you really briefly wind it back to Himiko um, after she dies in the early 200s. For a couple of hundred years, these different chiefdoms are coming together in bigger and bigger confederations until perhaps sometime in the 600s, one particular clan um, is in such a position of influence that they can start calling themselves heavenly sovereigns. In other words, this is the origins of Japan's imperial family, which is still with us now. 
this family dates itself back all those um, centuries into the past. So probably from around 700 to around 1100 is a, the high point of Japanese imperial rule, ruling from, for most of that time, what we now call Kyoto at that point, Heian-kyo. So Japan is a, a courtly society with an aristocracy at the top, and the rest of Japan is divided up into provinces. Um, I suppose what's really interesting is that during that time, Kyoto flourishes, beautiful flourishing of culture, painting, um, uh, kimono designs, famously poetry and, and literature. But they sort of take, some people would say anyway, they take their eye off the ball where the countryside is concerned. It's regarded as quite a dull and unimportant place. But what's happening, almost without people in Kyoto entirely noticing, is you're starting to get independently powerful families rising up in parts of rural Japan who don't owe as much to the court as they used to, don't take the court as seriously as they used to, and they engage in warrior work. They provide security and, and protection for people out in the countryside. And over time, they become so powerful that they start to meddle in politics in Kyoto. And so at the end of the 12th century, one of those families, the Minamoto, takes over, and you have the first shogunate in Japan. And that's really, you could say, the beginning of that kind of feudal rule in Japan. There's been a lot of questions um, on social media about feudal warlords. Mm. How, how much of a warring period was this? So it's, for the, first, for the first little while after what we call the Kamakura shogunate come to power, it's reasonably stable. But then on and off, um, these clans tend to have long memories. You have a sort of a series of conflicts until I think the big period of conflict, which um, your readers are probably thinking about, what we call uh, Sengoku Jidai, which is the Warring States period. So Japan goes through a couple of phases of quite successful uh, shogunates. One is in Kamakura by the seaside in the eastern Honshu. The other one, uh, the Muromachi shogunate, based in Kyoto. But when that starts to fall apart, this is when this Warring States period comes in. I suppose it's more or less a century from uh, middle or late 1400s through to the middle of the 1500s. And it's a sort of everyone for himself uh, conflict with these regional feudal warlords making alliances, double-crossing each other, um, vying over territory with Kyoto really having lost all control over events. People will still pay lip service to the emperor as being this important figurehead. And whatever they're doing, they'll say it's for the good of the emperor or the safety of the emperor. In fact, it's warlords out for themselves until, and this is the favourite period of history, actually, for a lot of Japanese, until the middle of the 1500s, you have a series of three warlords who start to try and tie Japan back together. They're called the three unifiers. The first of them is called Oda Nobunaga, fantastically violent individual, but a great strategist, one of the first to use firearms. Um, and these three together finally start to patch Japan back together. Uh, Alex Plotkin on Facebook mm. says, uh, can you talk about the history of the samurai tradition? Yes, absolutely. So, um, well, I was talking a moment ago about these families rising up in rural Japan, really from the 1000s, the 1100s, who engage in warrior work. That's really the origin of the samurai. So the word samurai comes from the verb in Japanese, saburao, to serve. And so originally these kind of professional, a professional warrior class basically emerges to take care of rural security. There are occasionally court nobles in Kyoto who are a bit worried about their own personal security, might have a couple of guys with swords hanging around outside their door at night to look after them. So that's sort of the origin. Originally they serve for 
money, for reward, for treasure, then they shift from late 1100s onwards to start serving whoever has served their master before them. So you get the development of what you might call a samurai code. Um, and they have their particular expertise with early on swords um, and bows and arrows. And then later on from the mid 1500s um, with guns. So by the, certainly by the, the, the late 1400s and across the 1500s, the samurai are very, very clearly linked to a particular domain lord, you know, in a particular region of Japan. That's the person they will serve. That's the person whose interests they will look out for. Um, and they're really, they're really the dominant force in Japanese politics, I would say, all the way until the middle of the 19th century. So centuries and centuries worth of Japanese politics is dominated by warriors. So it isn't a kind of a, a, a niche or, or, or geeky interest in, in samurai that people have. Actually, to understand the samurai is to understand centuries and centuries of, of, of rule in Japan, really. And when did people from the West reach Japan? So the first Europeans that we know of um, to reach Japan reached it in uh, 1543. So if you think listeners of yours who are interested in European empires, you know, around 1500, you start to get the emergence of the Spanish and the Portuguese in particular. And broadly speaking, they kind of carve up the world between them, don't they? From a place a little to the west uh, of Africa. Spanish take everything to the west, so they get, you know, the new world, they get what they discover as the Pacific. The Portuguese go the other way. So, you know, East Africa, parts of the Middle East, India, eventually they get to China. Um, then initially not that interested in Japan, but a group of them get shipwrecked in a Chinese boat. They end up lang um, landing at a place called uh, Tanegashima in the south of Japan. As I say, totally by accident, but from there, their, um, their involvement with Japan really starts to build. I suppose in, in two ways. One is they start supplying guns to Japan, which had very little of that before. Quickly, the Japanese start producing their own, but it's the Portuguese that bring them in. For a while, the word for gun in Japanese was Tanegashima, the name of the place where the Portuguese turned up. The other one, of course, is Christianity. So the Portuguese arriving when they do in the 1540s changes Japan quite profoundly thanks to those two uh, imports into Japan. What would you say were the characteristics of Japan's feudal era? So when people talk about feudal Japan, I think they're generally talking about the Tokugawa shogunate, which lasts from the early 1600s to the mid-1850s. I think one of the big characteristics of it would be a class system of a kind, a four-part class system where the warriors are at the top. You've got the farmers just below because they are seen as producing rice, vegetables, goods, etc. You've got artisans as number three. They're still at least making things. Right at the bottom, not especially well thought of, are the merchants because people regard them as essentially dealing in the wealth of others. And certainly for much of this period, it's very difficult to move around within that class system. Whatever you're born as, effectively, that way you stay. So some of Japan's drama in this period, whether it's kabuki theatre or the puppet theatre known as bunraku, explores relationships, almost doomed romances, where people can't be together because they come from different social strata. A lot of romance to be had there. You even have perhaps the great symbol of um, what's called the double suicide, where two people who can't be together in this life kill themselves together so that in the next life they can be born again 
and live out their lives together. So that's kind of a very romantic symbol of this very powerful class structure, which at the beginning of the era appears to people to be natural, and it appears to work well. After a period of instability, everyone knows where they stand, and Japan really flourishes for a century economically and culturally. But towards the end, that big characteristic of the feudal era, stability and that kind of stratified society, starts to look like stagnation. So you have merchants who are fantastically wealthy, um, throwing their money and their power around, but who technically are right at the bottom of society. And so by the 1850s, by the time Commodore Matthew C. Perry comes along, this is a society that, for some people, really no longer makes sense to itself. That what begins as a, a sensible feudal settlement, by the end, is simply holding the country back and has to change. What happened uh, in 1582... Uh, and how important was that in Japanese history? So 1582, this is around the time when, if I talked about those three unifiers early on, these three warlords who knit Japan back together, Oda Nobunaga is the first one, notably using guns, we think maybe firing in ranks. Very interesting also because he possibly uses some of the world's first ironclad warships against his enemies. So he's the first. The second, equally bloody, is called Hideyoshi. He's the foot soldier of Oda Nobunaga who becomes this great hegemon, this great ruler over much of Japan. And he's the guy in power around uh, the early 1580s. And what he's doing around the time your question is possibly thinking of is he um, is in control of most of Honshu, which is the main island. He then takes violent control of uh, Kyushu which is the big southern island, and he clamps down on Jesuit missionaries. Because he's very worried that European Christian missionaries are effectively another force in Japanese politics, um, and that cannot be tolerated. So whereas Oda Nobunaga before him had trouble with some of Japan's Buddhists who had their own soldiers and were getting involved in politics, and he was very clear and violent in suppressing them, Hideyoshi is interested in trying to suppress Christian missionary and Portuguese power in Japan. So I think around the 50, early 1580s, that's what he's doing, extending his geographical control in Japan and pushing back against European influence um, in what he regards as his country. Moving on to another pivotal date in Japan's history, um, why is 1854 so important? Ah, right, okay. Um, lovely question. So if we're going to fast forward uh, to 1854, within a couple of minutes, shall we say. So we talked about Hideyoshi starting to unify the nation. When he dies, within a couple of years of that, the third of these three unifiers comes along, seizes power, Tokugawa Ieyasu. He's very important because he creates... Japan's third and uh, probably most successful shogunate, the Tokugawa shogunate, based at Edo, which is now Tokyo. Um, and that, as a power structure in Japan, lasts all the way to the 1850s, which is the period that we're now talking about. And 1854, which is what your uh, reader is asking about, is the year that Japan makes a treaty, treaty of uh, peace and friendship with the United States of America. Um, it's an incredibly difficult and consequential decade for Japan in the 1850s. Their foreign policy, for want of a better expression, for about two and a half centuries by this point, has been keep foreigners out of Japan. So they feel quite burned, as it were, to use a contemporary phrase, by the meddling involvement by Europeans in the latter half of the 1500s. And so they say, actually, to create a stable society, we have to control our borders. So the only acceptable Europeans for the Japanese, the only acceptable Westerners for 
best part of two and a half centuries are the Dutch. And Japan will trade with the Dutch just at an artificial island called Dejima off the coast of Nagasaki. And that's it. But by the time you get to the 1850s, the United States is taking shape, California has become part of the Union. You can get from California to Japan in about 18 days in a steamship. And the attitude of the Americans is that Japan is now almost becoming part of our backyard. We need a relationship with these people. And so they send someone called Matthew uh, C. Perry, Commodore Matthew C. Perry, in 1853 to essentially say to the Japanese, we should have a friendly and trading relationship with each other. But he also says, in effect, or else, if you don't give us the relationship we want, then we may end up in a conflict with you. And one look at our steamship technology and our military technology that goes with it should show you that that'll be a short conflict, that the United States will win uh, hands down. And so the Japanese have to in the next few years, have to completely renegotiate their relationship with the rest of the world. You can't simply keep people out. And it becomes clear to some in Japan that that strategy of keeping people out has created a stable society, but also perhaps quite a stagnant one. And certainly one that in military terms and technological terms has been losing out. So some of the samurai who go down to the beach to watch Commodore Matthew C. Perry um, come ashore to negotiate in 1853 and again in 1854, they're holding weapons that in America would be in a museum by this point. They're so old and so outdated. Some of them don't even have ammunition. Most of them probably wouldn't even have fired as far as we know. So there's this huge push in Japan to try to modernise as a way of really securing their position. Because if you look across the water from Japan in the 1850s, you find China subject to a European imperial feeding frenzy, basically. And it's pretty simple for the Japanese to say, we are next on colonialism's to-do list if we, if we don't sort ourselves out. So 1854 becomes a really important date when they are beginning um, to establish really unequal relationships with these Western powers, because after the Americans come the Russians, the British uh, and the French. So 1854 really is the opening of the floodgates and the beginning of these debates in Japan, really about how do we modernise without simply becoming kind of a, a copy of a Western nation? How do we stay Japanese while still modernising? So I think 1854 marks the beginning of all those difficulties for Japan. You drew parallels there with China, which mm. is actually a question we've had, which is, why did the West not colonise Japan for so long, uh, whereas others, such as China, couldn't resist? Much of the reason, I would argue, is that Japan wasn't of all that much interest to people in the West. India was thought to be far richer. There were lots of legends about the wealth of India. The same uh, is true of China. Um, Japan wasn't thought to have much. The, the, uh, the landings that Western ships made in Japan before the period that we've just been talking about, other than the Dutch trading at Dejima, the landings they made tended to be um, for the sake of picking up fuel or supply so they could go somewhere else. So you've got India, you've got China, you've got parts of Southeast Asia known as the, the Spice Islands. These were places where you could pick up goods that you could then trade at home at an enormous profit. 
for India, that was true. There was also the issue of if you can control land and tax revenue in India, as the British uh, steadily started to do. Japan, for its part, there were a few legends that there might be interesting bits and pieces of treasure there, but it, it really wasn't of great interest to people. Only really by the time you get to the second half of the 19th century, such as the state of European imperialism, that any territory not already under the control of one power is seen as being fair game for the rest. So you have to stake a claim to these places. So by that point, Japan really couldn't get away with this isolationist policy. But before that, Japan more or less had no navy at all to speak of, no substantial shore batteries. There was no sense in which Japan was a formidable military power putting people off. It was more that Japan just wasn't high on the priority list. And once uh, Matthew Perry had forced the opening of Japan, how did that change the country in the next sort of 50 years or so? So there was a great debate um, after he was around. Obviously, the Japanese decide fairly early on that they need to agree to his request uh, because they, they're not equipped to fight a war with the Americans. But then from 1854 through to 1868, you have years of um, blood, really, where foreigners in Japan are attacked by people whose policy is to get rid of the barbarians, as they call them. Others want to have much deeper relationships with the Americans, the British and the French, take them as models for industry, for banking, for weapons technology, to build Japan up as the most powerful modern nation in Asia. So there's a great debate there, real divisions over what to do, which culminate in a civil war in Japan, known as the Boshin War, 1868-9. And that really is the end of the Tokugawa shoguns, the end of samurai rule in Japan. And they are replaced by a young generation of men, mostly from kind of middling samurai backgrounds, but who are soon dressed up in Western-style suits, touring the world looking for Western examples, um, and taking the emperor, the Meiji emperor, as their figurehead. They set out to completely revolutionise Japan. And this really gets going across the 1870s into the 1880s and 1890s. The period that this emperor rules, which is 1868 to 1912, is thought about as being the founding of a modern nation in Japan. Remembered now as, by and large, having been an incredibly successful epoch. By the time he dies, the Meiji Emperor dies, Japan has vanquished China in one war, won out over Russia in another war, uh, in 1905, and is by far and away the most powerful nation in Asia. So lots of losers as well as winners along the way, and I wouldn't minimise the degree to which some people fare really badly during this nation-building process. But certainly by the end, Japan has won itself considerable respect around the world for what it's achieved really in just the space of a few decades. And these are the seeds of imperial Japan, if you like. Um, that's right. So it's, it's funny, in, in Japan, if you go all the way back to, what, 700 through to middle of the 1100s, you've got a period of imperial rule. After that, the emperors are more or less the puppets of powerful aristocratic families and later of the shoguns. And then after 1868, the emperor sort of reappears, the Meiji emperor, just a teenager when he comes to power, as I say, taken as a figurehead by these new rulers in Japan. Um, but the emperor doesn't have a great degree of 
power. The the new leaders are very smart about setting the emperor up as divine or reminding people of his divinity, um, as someone to be respected, uh, as someone whose authority is absolute. The Japanese constitution, the modern constitution from 1889 until Second World War, basically says people's rights are a gift from the emperor and he will take them back if they turn out to have abused them. So very clever use gets made of the emperor as a figurehead and a symbol. But the degree to which he has any actual power is, is pretty debatable. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you dig around a little bit in the background of a prominent or successful male ruler, you'll find a woman somewhere in there who's doing most of the heavy lifting. And I think Hojo Masako is a great example of that in Japan. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And how aggressive militarily was Japan in the years before the First World War, for instance? It's a good question. There's always a debate in Japan. I mean, if, if people listening to this were to close their eyes and imagine the geography of that region, I mentioned earlier on that the island of Kyushu is only 200 kilometers from the Korean peninsula. And of course, Japanese can look back to the attempted Mongol invasions of Japan in the 1200s from the Korean peninsula over to Kyushu. And what appears obvious to them is with a gap like that and Western imperialism being what it is, it's absolutely crucial for Japan to have some kind of say in who has suzerainty on the Korean Peninsula. You can't let the Korean Peninsula basically fall into the hands of the Russians or the British or the French because it's a short hop to Japan. They may not actually invade Japan, but they can certainly cause a lot of trouble for Japan by having a base so nearby. So because of that, because of that geography, there's a debate in Japan about what its natural sphere of influence ought to be in a purely defensive sense. 
right? Uh, one of their early strategists talks about a line of advantage, which the Japanese need to establish just for their basic security. And that line of advantage incorporates Korea. So what's interesting, I suppose, about the period from really the 1870s right through until probably the early 1930s is, for some, Japan's behaviour in Asia is a matter of ensuring its own security. For others, it's about a country that goes way beyond that and starts unnecessary wars. So the war against China in 1894-5, really over the Korean Peninsula, some might say maybe that had to be fought to establish Japan's place. The Russo-Japanese War, 1904-5, was that a really a necessary conflict, hugely expensive conflict, or is that the beginning of a rather aggressive kind of imperialism from Japan? And then of course, if you're uh, Korean, 1909-1910, Japanese steadily make Korea into a protectorate and then a full colony of Japan. That's the point at which it's hard to talk about defensive measures and it looks like outright imperialism at that point. Um, what was Japan's experience of the First World War? So in the First World War, from our point of view, uh, Japan was on the side of the Angels, they were on the side of the Allies. Um, they didn't do a great deal in Europe. There are two aspects, I suppose, to what they did actually in the European theatre. One is um, members of the Japanese Red Cross were there on the battlefields of Europe looking after wounded soldiers. And the Japanese Navy was also active in the Mediterranean, um, looking after, well, for the most part, picking up survivors when um, Allied ships were attacked and wrecked. So there was a little bit of a presence there. What they were much more interested in doing, and for this they received some criticism at the hands of, of Europeans is taking advantage of that conflict to um, improve their situation in Asia. So Germany at that time or before the war had colonies in small parts of China um, and elsewhere in the, um, the Asia Pacific and Japan moved quite quickly to take those and they managed then with the Treaty of Versailles afterwards to have those established as Japanese protectorates. So it, some would say it was fairly opportunistic. Um, and the other opportunistic element, I suppose, is with European industry and trade so disrupted, Japanese industry uh, steps in um, and does actually very, very well out of the conflict as a result. So yeah, they were on, as I say, as it were, the right side, but more for their advantage probably than to the advantage of their other allies in that conflict. And the theme of conflict continued into the 1930s mm. for Japan, didn't it? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, some people would say perhaps the change point comes in the 1920s. You have a generation of political leaders and military leaders from this tumultuous period I've talked about from the late 1860s onwards, who are remembered now as being founding fathers, great people, visionary, but also quite... Um, perhaps quite realistic and mature in their vision of where Japan ought to place limitations on itself as a world power. A lot of those guys start to die off in the 1910s and early 1920s, and you get a generation coming through who've never really known vulnerability for Japan. And the view they increasingly start to take, and you really see it among young officers in the military in particular, is Japan isn't being given the respect it deserves. So you know, a couple of really quick examples. Japanese diplomats tried to get a racial equality clause built into the Treaty of Versailles. 
European countries, Westerners generally, block them. The United States immigration policy is clearly a racist policy against so-called yellow peril, Chinese and also the Japanese. Um, they do deals on uh, naval ratios with the British and the Americans. The Japanese see themselves as losing out in that. This all contributes to a sense that Japan's diplomats are spineless, its politicians are a little bit useless, and in order for Japan to protect itself in the world, um, Really, it needs to have a strong military and it needs to secure itself on the Asian mainland. Again, if people were to close their eyes and imagine the geography of the region, the peninsula, Korean Peninsula, is important. That's in Japan's hands. By this point, by, you know, we're talking about the 1920s, um, the Laotung Peninsula, which is just in the south of Manchuria, is also in Japanese hands. Surrounding them, you've got the Soviets increasingly asserting themselves in the eastern part of their territory. You've got Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek bringing China together more uh, than China has been in the past. Those sorts of things coming together make this younger generation think that we need to secure ourselves more on the Asian mainland, otherwise we're going to be overrun. Because they think they're kind of being hemmed in. You can almost go around clockwise. You've got the Soviets, you go further around, you've got the Americans, you go further around, you've got the British, the French and the Dutch in Southeast Asia, you know, British in Singapore, etc., go further around again and you've got the Chinese. So there is a sort of encirclement theory um, that some in the Japanese military would say we are done for as a country if we don't assert ourselves. And partly as a result of that, and partly because of this sense of disappointment, as I've said, with domestic politicians and also with Japan not receiving the respect that it deserves internationally, these things come together to create a sense that the military is the place you go to for strong and effective government. And you get plenty of people in Japan who never really wholeheartedly accept that idea, but slowly get pushed more and more in that direction until across the 1930s, steadily the military are calling the shots. Does some of that mindset help us make sense of Japan's Second World War, or is that too much of a stretch? No, I think it does make sense. I think if you look, for example, at um, two key moments, 1937, when the full-on Second Sino-Japanese War begins, and then after Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese declare war on uh, the United States and the British Empire, the rhetoric is always that Japan stands for stability in East Asia, but that poor leadership in China especially, um, and in other parts of the world, is forcing Japan to take the steps that it's taking. Now, I wouldn't say that, you know, as people in our own times, we need to necessarily agree with that take on it. But certainly ordinary Japanese being uh, asked to comply with conscription, with higher taxes, with the privations of war, they are constantly told that this is an existential conflict. It's a war for, for, for Japan's own survival that has effectively been forced upon Japan by other powers. So regardless of how true or how mendacious that might be as a claim, I think it does help us to explain the ferocity of that conflict, because Japanese people are brought up to believe that this is an all or nothing fight. We've had lots of questions about Japan's Second World War, mm -hmm. and they're all quite varied. Okay. Um, so I wondered whether you'd be up for just talking us through what you see as the, as the key moments uh, in this conflict? If that's yeah. not too broad a question. No, I, I, I can do that. And if there's anything you want me to say more about, then um, I can come back to it. So um, I'll say there are probably three or four key moments, and I'll be pretty brief on both, and then we can talk a bit more if you want to. Um, probably the, the full-on invasion of Manchuria, 
uh, in uh, the beginning of the 1930s is one key moment. I suppose what's really important about that, two things. One is that, of course, it expands Japan's commitments on the Asian mainland, but also that that's a, um, a conflict that is started by the Japanese military with no permission from civilian politicians back in Tokyo. In fact, the politicians back in Tokyo get in touch with um, army command in Manchuria and say, you need to stop this conflict before it gets out of hand. You need to roll it back. And they tell media, foreign media in Tokyo, that, you know, we're doing our best to control it. But the army keep pushing on. And civilian politicians in Tokyo keep having to effectively tell the international media, yes, we intended to do that. Yes, we basically ordered that or okayed it. Whereas, in fact, the army is doing its own thing in Manchuria. So that's probably the first period important for the, the control of territory, but also for the sense that the army is reading, is really leading civilian politicians by the nose. I suppose the second key moment is 1937, the summer of 1937, where tensions between Japan and China are building up to the point where the Prime Minister of Japan and in China, Chiang Kai-shek, do not want a full-on conflict. And yet pressure on both sides from, you know, various domestic pressures basically force them into it. And so Japan commits itself fully to a China war, which certainly in hindsight, it could never, ever win. So it controls quite quickly key cities like Shanghai and Beijing and later Nanjing. But Chiang Kai-shek leads his, forward in, leads his forces sorry, uh, more and more into the centre of China. So Japanese forces can't possibly follow them and maintain their gains. And so it quickly becomes a conflict that no one can really win. That's important because then in 1941, when tensions with the United States are really building up, one of the things the US insist on in order to avoid a conflict with Japan, is that the Japanese pull out of China. By that point, you've got hundreds of thousands of Japanese soldiers committed, untold casualties, the cost of it all. Like I say, they're selling it as an existential war back home. Japanese leaders cannot turn around and tell the general public, actually, you know what, we're giving up on China, everybody's coming home. So that momentum in China forces the, the, the pressure on, really on Japan to pursue a preemptive strike against the United States at Pearl Harbor in December 1941. That's obviously got to be point three, the beginning of the conflict with the US um, and immediately with the British Empire as well. And early on, what, December 1941, January 42, a string of victories for Japan in Asia. And what's more, some people in Asia, nationalists in Asia, anti-colonial nationalists saying the Japanese are here to free us from white Western colonialism. Very quickly they realise that isn't at all what the Japanese are interested in doing, but nevertheless that's the view early on. So that's probably the third moment, Pearl Harbour, the beginning of that part of the war and Japan's early successes. Probably the fourth and final moment in the conflict uh, that I might highlight would be uh, mid-1942. So very quickly the tide of the war starts to turn against Japan. Japanese have underestimated the extent to which the Americans are willing to fight and the speed with which American industry can keep up, basically, with feeding the war effort. So America starts out producing Japan. Really, in 1942, as early as that, the Americans are planning for an occupation of Japan after the war. So that's the other key moment. Really, after the middle of 1942, for the most part, things are going against Japan, all the way through until, of course, the climax in 1945. Mm. And of course, we in hindsight know the dreadful climax. Mm. To, 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 up to what point was Hiroshima um, on the cards? I suppose, um, 
really up until the Potsdam conference, I would say, uh, in the summer of 1945, it's at that point that um, the president becomes aware that this weapon is available, that it's been successfully tested. And there's always been a great debate, which I think will probably never be settled, about whether that weapon really had to be used. So on the side of you know people who would say that it, it had to be used, the general argument tends to be that the Americans and others had done calculations of the likely loss of life, American loss of life, Japanese military and Japanese civilian loss of life, if they mounted a full-scale invasion of the Japanese home islands. And having made those calculations um, and the numbers running into hundreds of thousands of deaths, they calculated that a short, sharp shock like the one that an atomic blast could possibly deliver might be the best way of ending the war with minimum loss of life. But I, th I suppose it's very important to put the opposite side of that, which is firstly that those sorts of calculations are impossible to make. To an extent, some of them are already trying to justify the use of the atomic bomb anyway. And also the big thing for the Americans was preventing the Soviets from entering the war against Japan, um, which they only do in August 1945. The Soviets enter very late. The Americans were very worried about the Soviets entering the war late and claiming parts of the Japanese archipelago for themselves. So with a view to the, the post-war world, the use of that weapon to keep the Soviets out of Japan, to impress upon the rest of the world the extent of American power, um, these sorts of things perhaps helped persuade people um, uh, that the use of the bomb was justified. But then I, mean, I suppose the last point on that really quickly is people who study the diaries of President Truman would say they suspect he didn't know the extent of the civilian damage, the civilian casualties that that bomb might inflict. That even though he'd been told of the successful test, to really imagine what it could do until you use it was perhaps quite difficult. Because he kept insisting, Truman kept insisting, we're using this and we're going to minimise civilian casualties. And yet we know a weapon like that doesn't understand, can't possibly be used with that kind of precision that you can avoid civilian casualties. You know, Hiroshima was a legitimate military target, but there's no way you can confine um, that weapon to, to targets that small. And people who argue against the use of the bomb would say that was already known the power of the bomb and the fallout, etc. So it's a bit disingenuous to say, well, we didn't know that it would have quite that effect on civilians. So it, it's a complex debate, but I think it comes together in, in terms of the decision-making really in July um, 1945 to finally use it. Quite a few people um, asking questions along the line of how, despite this enormous devastation and loss of life, was Japan able to rebuild uh, economically and I suppose psychologically after after this had happened? It's a really good question, isn't it? Well, there have been lots of people surprised by the fact, for example, that having dropped two atomic bombs on Japan and also, we mustn't forget, the incredible devastating power of the firebombing of cities like Tokyo, a single uh, firebombing air raid in Tokyo in, what was it, I think March 45, killed about 100,000 people in a single night. So having been through all that, why is it that the Americans come in and are treated, relatively speaking, respectfully uh, and peacefully by Japanese? So there were some who like to argue after the war, maybe that kind of argument lingers even now, which is that the Japanese were brought up in terms of families and schools and general political culture to be politically speaking, relatively submissive 
to whoever it is uh, is in power. And because there's a switch of leadership, well, it's the Americans now. Um, I don't really buy into that. I think by the end of the war and just after the war, as people got to understand the enormous gap between what they were told they were fighting the war for and how they were doing in that war, and on the other hand, the reality of the war that Japan had started and how their leaders had treated both the soldiers, but even the civilian population, to whose defence not much money was really put aside, especially towards the end of the war where, you know, fighter planes and, and other sorts of um, equipment were in very short supply. There was a, this deep, deep disillusionment and hatred for the leaders of Japan in the late 30s, early 40s, that makes it possible to accept a new leadership um, even if it is your former enemy. And also the Americans, to give them their due, they started to supply the Japanese with a lot of things that Japanese um, centrists and liberals had long wanted anyway. Things like um, the vote for uh, women, for women to be allowed the vote, to have a more genuinely democratic system, to have a, a fairer economy that wasn't being controlled by a very small group of powerful companies, as to a great extent it was before 1945. For all these reasons, the Americans were giving the Japanese much of what they wanted. So in terms of politics, for many, that was seen to be pretty healthy. The Americans, because they wouldn't let the Japanese keep up a defensive capability, um, were in effect uh, absolving the Japanese of a need to spend on their own defence. So some of that money and expertise goes instead into industry. So Sony, this very famous company, is started by people who used to serve in the Japanese military, but who were freed up because Japan no longer has a military. The Shinkansen train, you know, the bullet train, again was created by people who had served in the military, but repurposed their skills, you know, to these new ends. So a lot of that is down to the United States allowing or forcing Japan to shift the way that it uses its skills and its infrastructure um, and its money. And for a few years, you know, you have this post-war economic boom. Japan does extraordinarily well out of that, largely thanks to the Americans um, going easy on Japan with their tariff regime, buying a lot from Japan during the Korean War. For all these reasons, Japan is able to bounce back pretty quickly, really from what the late uh, 1950s through to the early 1960s, the so-called economic miracle. Um, and I think those are some of the key reasons why that becomes possible. Um, your book um, explores Japan's history through 20 individuals. Mm. Are there any individuals in this story that we've not covered that you think perhaps deserve more prominence than they usually get? Oh, that's a good question. So, I mean, the book covers 20 people, so I've got to pick... I mean, Queen Himiko we begin with, of course, the first named person in Japanese history. Um, if I had a personal favourite, uh, having not long finished the book, Tanaka Kakue, who I'm not sure that he is all that well known. He is the prime. He was the prime minister of Japan um, in uh, for a very very short period in the early 1970s. Helped to rebuild Japanese relations with China, which, as we all well know, since that time have not actually fared that well. Um, but as a very successful politician, a kind of wheeler dealer, also fantastically corrupt. It has to be said as well. He made an enormous amount of, amount of money uh, out of what he did. So I don't necessarily, you know, condone him from an ethical point of view but he's he's very very interesting a charismatic man i think the first ever japanese prime minister not to have been to university um the kind of the kind of feeling you might have of having your country ruled by a used car salesman um really good talker and he's interesting for his own right but also maybe for one more reason which is 
people may know that the Liberal Democratic Party, formed in 1955, have almost never been out of power in Japan. Tanaka Kakue was one of the most successful um, LDP leaders of all time. And not, we've not long said goodbye to Japan's longest serving prime minister, uh, Abe Shinzo, who also LDP. Tanaka's life is really interesting because it shows us how that becomes possible for a country that's economically very successful, culturally very successful, but politically has been virtually a one-party state. Um, and all the interesting politics in Japan happens within the LDP. And so someone like Tanaka gives you an insight into how politics and money and Japanese culture come together to make that effective one-party state possible. And he does it in such a colourful way. He's a wonderful man to read about. He's very interesting. Um, Maddie Hodges asks, mm. has there ever been a strong female ruler? It's a good question. And a lot of historians, for good reasons, have looked back. Because, I mean, Japan does otherwise tend to be sort of a very male-centred society. One interesting female ruler that I talk about in the book is called Hojo Masako. If people think back, we were talking about the first ever shogunate in Japan. It's had these three shogunates. The first one, the Kamakura shogunate. We sometimes say the Kamakura Bakufu military government. Um, sort of started life towards the end of the 12th century. Hojo Masako was the wife of the first shogun. Now, he died quite early on in, um, in the history of this shogunate. Embarrassingly, he fell off his horse and was killed, which is pretty poor for the founder of a warrior government to fall off your horse and, and die. Um, Hojo Masako was then incredibly important because she basically um, ruled from, as it were, behind the throne. So successive shoguns, a couple of two or three shoguns after her husband, were not especially effective rulers. A couple of them were her sons, and she kept them on the right track. She did the politics behind the scenes. She even helped to save the shogunate when briefly the emperor in Kyoto tried to launch a war to extinguish these new samurai upstarts. But she was incredibly powerful. She became known as the nun shogun, incredibly powerful in keeping that shogunate on the road. And it lasted for many, many decades after that. What you often find in Japan is if you, probably as other parts of the world as well, if you dig around a little bit in the background of a prominent or successful male ruler, you'll find a woman somewhere in there who's doing most of the heavy lifting. And I think Hojo Masako is a great example of that in Japan. This has obviously been an extremely uh, whistle-stop tour through, <laughs> through centuries of complex history. Are there misconceptions about Japan that we hold in the West perhaps that you'd like to change or ways of understanding Japan that you think need to change? It's a good question. My impression is that a lot of the post-war media coverage of Japan, and I'm thinking since the 1950s, especially the 1960s, you know, the era of the, the, the television travel documentary. I'm a big fan of Clive James, for example, who did lots of this. When you get Japan in the mainstream media for a long time, there was the vision of a consensus culture where people perhaps don't put much of a value on argument, critical analysis, being, you know, appropriately pushing back against their leaders. Um, I think from my own work on Japan and my writing on Japan, that's probably the one big thing that I'd like people to explore more, that Japan is a much more diverse place in terms of people's attitudes, ideologies, class, professions. Um, it's diverse. People argue all the time over what Japan ought to be as a country. And especially in the modern era, when people are having this argument about what Japan should become and how it can be modern without being Western, 
that yielded a really interesting series of debates, which in the end weren't just about Japan, but they were about the direction of travel of the entire modern world. So lots of Japanese intellectuals said, well, do we want a kind of cutthroat Western-style capitalism, or do we want a country that pays more attention, for example, to community or to family? So some of the debates that Japan has been home to are relevant for the entire world. And for, I think what I'd love to see is people being more exposed to those sorts of debates, because we renew our picture of Japan, but we also can find Japan as a source of intelligent debate about modern life in general. For people to discover that, I think, would be a really valuable thing. That was Christopher Harding. His book, The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives, is published by Alan Lane on the 5th of November. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Priya Atwal will be speaking about the rise and fall of the Sikh Empire.